What a, what a prayer to pray before we come to uh, the words of Scripture. If you have your Bibles, let's open them to Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20 is where we are today, and let me, let me read it for us. <coughs> this comes after the events we heard about last week, about Paul in Ephesus and a, and a riot um, being engendered by his presence and by his message there. And then it starts, verse, uh, verse 1, chapter 20. When the uproar had ended, Paul sent for the disciples and after encouraging them, said goodbye and set out for Macedonia. He traveled through that area, speaking many words of encouragement to the people and finally arrived in Greece where he stayed three months. Because some of the Jews plotted against him, just as he was about to sail for Syria, he decided to go back through Macedonia. He was accompanied by Sopater, son of Pyrrhus from Berea, Aristarchus and Secundus from Thessalonica, Gaius from Derby, Timothy also, and Tychicus and Trophimus from the province of Asia. And these men went on ahead and waited for us at Troas. But we sailed from Philippi after the festival of unleavened bread, and five days later joined the others at Troas, where we stayed seven days. On the first day of the week, we came together to break bread. Paul spoke to the people, and because he intended to leave the next day, he kept on talking until midnight. There were many lamps in the upstairs room where that we were meeting, and seated in the window was a young man named Eutychus, who was sinking into a deep sleep as Paul talked on and on. When he was sound asleep, he fell to the ground from the third story and was picked up dead. Paul went down, threw himself on the young man and put his arms around him. Don't be alarmed, he said. He's alive. Then he went upstairs again and broke bread and ate. And after talking until daylight, he left. The people took the young man home alive and were greatly comforted. We went on ahead to the ship and sailed for Assos, where we were going to take Paul aboard. He had made this arrangement because he was going there on foot. When he met us at Assos, we took him aboard and went on to Mytilene. The next day, we sailed from there and arrived off Chios. The, next day, the day after that, we crossed over to Samos, and on the following day, arrived at Miletus. Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus to avoid spending time in the province of Asia, for he was in a hurry to reach Jerusalem, if possible, by the day of Pentecost. You can see why I didn't ask someone else to, to read this with all these names in them. Well, from Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church. And when they arrived, he said to them, You know how I lived the whole time I was with you, from the first day I came into the province of Asia. I served the Lord with great humility and with tears, and in the midst of severe testing by the plots of my Jewish opponents. You know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly and from house to house. I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. And now, compelled by the Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city, the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task that the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. Now I know that none of you among whom I have gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. Therefore I declare to you today that I am innocent of the blood of any of you. 
For I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. Keep watch over yourselves and over all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he brought, bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw disciples away after them. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years, I never stopped warning you, each of you, night and day, with tears. So now I commit to you, to God, and to the word of his grace, which can build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I've not coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing. You yourselves know that these hands of mine have supplied my own needs and the needs of my companions. In everything I did, I showed you that by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak, remembering the words the Lord Jesus himself said, that it is more blessed to give than to receive. Well, when Paul had finished speaking, he knelt down with all of them and prayed. They all wept as they embraced him and kissed him. What grieved them most was his statement that they would never see his face again. And then they accompanied him to the ship. Let's pray. God, we've just sung of our desire to know you more, to know you deeper. And now we have read from your word. And I pray, God, that you would speak to us through it. I pray in ways that might be surprising and unexpected to us, that you would speak to us and that we'd hear your voice prompting us to a greater faith, greater trust, greater dependence, greater obedience, greater joy, greater uh, service, whatever it might be. We ask, God, that you speak in Jesus' name. Amen. I wonder if, um, if you remember this. Certainly, in my experience growing up, every now and then, our family would have a family slideshow night. Did you have one of these? We, we had a projector, something like this. Um, and there was a point when we upgraded and we got a carousel one. And that was like cutting edge. So, so some of you know what I'm talking about. I feel like my generation is probably the last generation that had these kind of slideshow nights. But what would happen is, I don't know, someone would come back from, from a trip away, it might be a missionary or something like that, and instead of getting their, their um, photos that they'd taken while on their trip developed into photos, um, the, the negative would kind of be put into this frame and, and it would be become a, a slide. And so you'd load up the carousel with all these slides and then you'd, you'd click on through slide by slide. Now, these nights were monotonously boring, I have to say. <laughs> and so the highlight was always when one of the slides is in the carousel upside down or back to front or... Yeah, or guess jam, that's right, the globe blows or something like that. That's right. These were the exciting moments. Um, part of the, the issue with slideshow nights, why they were so boring, is because photography in that day was just not quite the standard that it is today. I mean, they were limited by film, so instead of taking like a hundred digital shots and just picking the one that worked out, you were kind of stuck with whatever it was, whether Aunt Gertrude's eyes are closed and whether Bill is looking at the camera or not. Like, you were just 
this is just what you got and you just had to, to go with it. With film, yeah, that's right, you were stuck with whatever, yeah, all right, I've already said all that, whatever. Um, now, I want to say, I, I did want to say, thankfully, those kind of slideshow nights are a thing of the past, but I don't know what you have experienced, but I would say that unfortunately they're not. Um, when my parents came back from their European river cruise a few years ago, uh, the technology has just updated, is all that's happened. And so we were subjected to three videos of their photos just slide, scrolling through uh, of all their trip. And that was then in addition to the photo books that we also had to flick through and ooh and ah about all these wonderful things that my parents had seen. Good times. But, but I was reminded of all this about slideshows as we come to uh, the book of Acts and Acts 20 specifically. See, the, the first six verses are this summary of Paul's travels with quick little snapshots of where he went and who he went there with. It's like in, in these verses that, Paul, uh, that Luke is, you know, flicking through the slideshow. Here we are at this place and here's so-and-so doing this and, and here's the fish that we caught and here's the takeaway bar that we ate at. Like, he's just flicking through the slides saying where they are that they started in Ephesus, they travelled around Macedonia, they, they ended up in, in Greece, probably at Corinth, uh, before they then took ship. And here's our ship that we were on, and, and then going back through Macedonia again until leaving Philippi to arrive at, at Troas. And of particular note here then are, are Paul's travelling companions. Uh, you know, if we imagine this as a slideshow at Luke's house and, and the, the screen's projecting up on, on one of the walls, there's now this series of, of slides of all these individual men. And for each one, Luke introduces them and tells us you know, a little bit about where they're from. There are seven different men here named. And they come from various places where Paul has been ministering over the past years. They come from Berea, Thessalonica, Derby, and the province of Asia. This team of people from these diverse places is a witness to the fruitfulness of Paul's mission uh, and, and the efforts that he's gone to in each of these places. And then it also shows us the, the mission-mindedness of the early Christian communities that he had uh, planted as they now then send people themselves and join him in his work. At Troas, though, we change from the slideshow. Luke gets out his other projector. He gets out the film projector. We get to see a full scene of activity of what goes on in Troas. And it's a scene from the life of the church. Just as we, you know, live stream and upload videos of our services, that's what Luke now shows us uh, in what goes on. Earlier in Acts, he's given us summary descriptions of what, of what goes on in the church, but here we actually see it's life from verse 7, that on the first day of the week, we came together to break bread. Now, having had the Sabbath over Saturday, the, the first day of the week was then the Sunday. And it was a work day, so the church gathered together of a Sunday evening, after all of the day's activities. And they came together to break bread, which is a reference, yes, to the Lord's Supper, but also more general, generally to having a meal together and fellowshipping over that. They did this in a private home, in an upstairs room. And I think this is significant because church was not associated with a particular building that they went to, but it was just the coming together of the people. And that could happen kind of in any place. In this, then, we see the re relationality of it. 
you know, I talked about earlier about us as, as the church family. That's what's going on here. The, the family is coming together in relationship as they meet in a home over a meal. It was not about programs and activities and rosters and, and doing stuff, but it was about gathering, uh, being and gathering as the family of God together. And as the, the film flicks through the projector, we see Paul talking and talking and talking. Luke describes that he just talked on and on. Yeah, th- there's this sense that even Luke thought Paul needed to wind this thing up. Um, and I think then that this passage means that you never have a reason to complain about the length of David or my preaching here. You know, until it gets to the next morning, you have nothing to complain about. We are, we are good. Um, so just note that. Though I do always say no one complains about a short sermon, so uh, that's also my motto. Um. <laughs> so, Paul is talking on and on, and he talks, uh, talks till midnight, has a brief interlude, and then he goes on until the next morning, until daylight. But as we look at this gathering of the church that's going on here, we see in this the clear significance and centrality even of the teaching of God's Word to God's people. And if this was a video, if this was a film you know, being shown to us, I wonder if we'd see Paul Eutychus in the background just beginning to, to nod off and just having those things, the head droops, and then suddenly he is awake. We've certainly witnessed it here, um, <laughs> can I just say. I won't name names, but it has happened. There might be kids in the scene who are, who are nudging each other and pointing and laughing at, at Eutychus as, as his head, uh, as the you know, gap between the head nods gets shorter and shorter. Maybe the, the camera zooms in on him as he just struggles to, to stay awake. But in the end, for poor Eutychus, it gets all too much. And tragically, he's sitting in a window And so he falls from this third-story window where he was sitting, and he dies. Paul, however, imitates the prophets of old. He imitates Elijah and Elisha, and he runs down and he throws his body on top of Eutychus, and Eutychus is restored to life. And and this interruption in his preaching seems to be the prompt to actually stop and, and eat together. You know, it it reads like, you know, they gathered for the meal, but Paul has just been talking till midnight, and it takes extreme efforts on the part of Eutychus for him to stop long enough for them to be able to eat dinner together and to then share in the Lord's Supper before he then continues on. And we read that the result of all of this, the result of the gathering of the church and of fellowshipping together and of sharing in the word and in sacrament is that the people were greatly comforted. It's unclear what that specifically refers to. It could be the the witness to the power of God as Eutychus is raised to life. It could be the teaching of the word. It could be the finish of the teaching of the word. It could be their time together. It could be participating in the Lord's Supper and of being reminded of the gospel. It could be all of that together. Whatever the specifics, the experience uh, that, that we see here, the experience of the gathering as the church was a a time of comfort and encouragement to the people. Well, after this 
spotlight then on, on the life of the church, Luke returns to his slideshow as the team travel from Troas to Miletus with a few stops along the way. And in Miletus, Paul calls for the elders of the church at Ephesus to come to him. He'd sailed past Ephesus knowing that if he stopped there, he'd spend more time there than he really wanted to, as he really wanted to get on to Jerusalem. It's the classic case of, of after church where, where dad and the kids are, are ready to go and, and the wife is still heartily engaged in conversation. Um, and, and so Paul knows that if he goes to Ephesus, that's going to be him. And so he just misses it in, in the hole. And so Luke sli- stops the slideshow here. It stays on the, the one screen, if you like, of the elders having gathered. And here Luke tells the full story of what Paul had to say to the elders. And what we read here, interestingly, is the only speech recorded in the book of Acts that's delivered to a Christian audience. All the others have been you know, evangelistic or apologetic sermons, or uh, as we'll get to in particular, they're, they're Paul's kind of legal defense in that environment. But here, Paul is talking to Christians. He's talking to the Christian leaders of the church in Ephesus. And he starts by reminding them, of his past with them. He says, you know how I lived the whole time I was with you. Uh, I served the Lord with great humility and with tears and in the midst of severe testing by the plots of my Jewish opponents. You know that I've not hesitated to preach anything that would have be helpful to you, but have taught publicly and from house to house. I've declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul starts his message to the Ephesian elders by reminding them of his experience and his ministry with them. It was a ministry that was characterized by humility, by tears, by being tested by opposition from others and and by his preaching and teaching. He was not seeking glory, nor was he peddling an easy message or one that he didn't really believe in, but rather he was a faithful witness to the good news of Jesus. He was a humble servant of Christ. And there's a sense, especially as he continues, that he's encouraging these leaders, as he did the Corinthians, to follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. He reminds them of his life, that it would be a model to them that they would follow. He's modeled to them a life of faith and service. And then we read verse 22, And now, compelled by the Spirit, I'm going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city, the Holy Spirit warns me that hardships and prison are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim, my only aim is to finish the race and complete the task that the Lord Jesus has given me. This task of testifying to the grace of God. Having reminded them of his past, he now um, shares with them his future one of prison and of hardship, which is the same as what his past had been. It's the same as what he'd been experiencing already. But look at the perspective that he has, where we so often actively avoid suffering and hardship. He presses on into it because his life meant nothing to him. He says, my only aim is not to experience comfort and ease, not to experience prosperity and well-being, but my only aim is to finish the race and to complete the task that Jesus has given to me. His eyes were fixed on Jesus, and everything else just paled in comparison to that. 
He wanted to do everything that Jesus was asking of him. That was his only aim. That was his overriding goal and motivation. And the task that Jesus had given to him was to testify to the good news of God's grace. And he's been doing this. We see in these verses in this chapter that he did not hesitate to preach anything that was helpful for them. We saw that he taught them publicly and from house to house. He declared to Jews and Greeks that they need to turn to God in repentance and have faith in Christ. He's testified to the good news of God's grace. And in the verses to come, he talks about how he's preached the kingdom and he's proclaimed the whole will of God to them. He has been pouring himself out to fulfill this task that has been given to him by Jesus. And he will continue to do, to do so, despite the opposition, the difficulty that he knows will continue as he, uh, that he will continue to face as he keeps going on. And then he turns to the elders. He turns, you know, he's reminded them of his past, he's anticipated his future with them, and now he turns to the present as he speaks to the elders who are before them about their ministry here and now. Verse 25. Actually, uh, yeah, now I know that none among you whom I've gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. Therefore, I declare to you today I'm innocent of the blood of any of you for I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. Here he gets to his instructions. Keep watch over yourselves and over all the flock which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. And remember that for three years I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. Now in these verses, Paul gives three instructions to the Ephesian elders. Now, we might look at them and, and think, you know, I don't have to worry about this because I'm not an elder. Um, we currently have five elders in our church serving us in that way. We have Rob Bond, uh, Lee Ubergang, Greg Stanley, Diane Wicks, and, and Alistair Robb. We then have two pastors, David and, and myself. And so that means for, for most of you here, these verses that are spoken to elders, they don't directly apply to you. But I think they actually do, just in a different way. So the writer to the Hebrews says, Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Therefore, our elders should be people, you know, well, our elders are people whose lives we should look up to. They're people who are examples to us of what an outcome of following Christ is. So we may not be an elder, but as a tangible example before us of what Jesus looks like, of what following Jesus looks like, we should want to imitate them. So therefore, the instruction that has been given to them has relevance for the rest of us as we seek to imitate their life. Also, these verses show us the significance of the role that, that they play and fulfill within the life of the church. Being an elder is not just about you know, attending a meeting every fortnight, but it's a serious spiritual business that affects not only them, but affects the whole church. And so understanding the eldership task, such verses should prompt us to be in regular prayer for them and to offer encouragement to them. And not only to them, but to their families as well, who also bear that burden. So having said that, 
let's look at what Paul instructs the elders. His first instruction to them is that they need to keep watch. They need to keep watch over themselves and over the church that has been entrusted to their oversight. Paul says to his younger friend Timothy, he says, Watch your life and your doctrine closely. Persevere in them because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. This is the message to the elders. They can't just afford to they can't afford to just drift or be casual about how they live and about what they believe because it has consequences for others. They need to watch their lives closely. And they need to watch our lives as well. They do this not as gossips or, or busybodies, but as ones who have to give an account before God for you. Think about a, a good parent. A, a good parent pays attention to their child's life. And most of the time, hopefully, it will all be rosy and good. But then when the teacher writes a comment in their report that seems out of character, when there's a change of fashion or friendship group or mood, when they start making choices that, that don't seem wide, wise, that's then when the good parent steps in. They have a conversation. They, they ask questions. They remind their child of how they've been raised. They express their concern. They share their, their wisdom and experience because they want good for their children. This is the elder's task. They keep watch over the flock to, to pay attention and to then intervene when it seems to be needed. And that intervention is not, you know, because they're getting a power trip or anything like that. They're, that intervention is because they love and they care and they want good. So they need to keep watch. That's their first task. Paul's second instruction to them then not only to keep watch and to pay attention, but then for them to actively shepherd the church. To shepherd the church, to shepherd the flock, is to tend to it, to look after the well-being of the sheep, to, to seek the lost, to, to care for the sick, to bind up those with the broken bones. It's to feed the sheep, leading them to good pasture and making sure that they are nourished and eating what is good for them. To shepherd the flock is to protect the sheep, guiding them away from danger, ensuring that they are safe, and, and then fighting off the thieves who would steal them away and the wolves who would hurt and kill them for their own gain. Being a shepherd is an active, dirty, and dangerous job. And this is what Paul instructs the elders to be and to do. Anyone want to be an elder? Because the third instruction then to the elders is that they need to be on guard. There are savage wolves that will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Now this is not about you know, outside forces like antagonistic governments or progressive lobby groups or anything like that. This is wolves within the church. These are false teachers who distort the truth in order to draw disciples away after them. These are wolves in sheep's clothing. These are people who teach that there is more for us to do for our salvation than to just trust in Jesus. There are these things that you must do and these other things that you mustn't do first in order to be saved. They add to the gospel. And in doing so, they actually take away from it. 
These are people who teach that God just wants you to be happy and at ease, health, wealth, and prosperity, and that any hardship and difficulty in your life is due to a lack of faith on your part and can be overcome then with positive thinking and if you only then believe enough. These are people who hold the scriptures lightly, who place more value on their personal experience of God and fresh words from Him than evaluating all of that against the firm and unchanging benchmark of the biblical revelation. These are people who question the Bible's stance on morality, who doubt the miraculous, who who discount the Old Testament, who offer self-help rather than grace, who want the attention on themselves, who cause division in the church. Now they might actually be lovely, lovely people. That's some of their power and their appeal. But they are wolves. And it is the elders' job to risk conflict and unpopularity and the malignment of their own character in order to fight off these wolves and to protect the flock. So who would be an elder? And that's then exactly why they need your prayer and encouragement, why their families need your prayer and encouragement, and why they need you also to be diligent about your own faith, about your own passionate pursuit of God and of listening to Jesus in your own life. And so Paul finishes his message to the elders with these words. He says, Now I commit you to God and to the words of his grace, words that can build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. It is the word of God, the message of his grace that will build up the church, that will grow a life of faith and Christ-likeness among uh, his disciples and will then gift to you the reality of life in his kingdom. This is why Paul placed such an emphasis on the preaching and teaching of God's word in his ministry. It's why Paul talked literally all night at Troas because he knew this was his one chance and he had God's word to communicate them because it was God's word and the word of God's grace that would build up the church there. So we've seen in Luke's slideshow today a snapshot of the fruitfulness of Paul's missionary efforts and the sending nature of the churches he planted. We've seen the gathering of the church the coming together of God's people for fellowship and for teaching, and that that is then a place of encouragement for our faith. We've seen the seriousness of the tasks of the elders for the protection and the well-being of the church corporately as well as the individual sheep who make it up. And we've come at the end of it to see again the word of His grace, the message of the gospel that is what builds up the church, both its individual members and it's gathering corporately. So as Luke now turns off the projector and finishes the slideshow, let us remember the word of God's grace again now as we share in communion together. You'll have each received a, a cup as you came in, and can I ask you, please restrain yourselves from peeling the plastic yet. You don't know how off-putting it is to hear that rustle as, as I continue to talk. So So hold it, but don't open it yet. Because as we come to communion, what we're coming to is a tangible reminder to us of the gospel. 
we come to the word of God's grace, the good news that Paul was testifying to. And here it is in a nutshell. God made us to know him and to love him, to walk throughout all of our life in relationship with him and in obedience to him. And in doing so, we would experience the richness, the fullness, the abundance of life as it was meant to be lived. However, we thought we knew better than God. And we disobeyed him. And in doing so, we rebelled against his good rule and authority. And we broke our relationship with him. We set ourselves up in opposition to him, saying, with our deeds, if not with our words, that we didn't need him and we don't want him. In short, we sinned. And our sin separated us from God and robbed us of the life that he had for us. And nothing that we could do could overcome this gap that was now between us and God. Nothing we could do could deal with our sin problem. And so God, in his love for us, even though he was the party who had been wronged, even though he was the one who had been rejected, even though he was the one who we had set ourselves up in active opposition against, God took the initiative. And God, in his love, sent Jesus to live the perfect life to show us again what life with God and in his kingdom looked like. He offered us his life and he made it possible for us to experience it by dying our death. He died on, for us on the cross. And in doing so, he took all of our sin upon himself and so he bore its punishment and its consequence. So now, if we put our faith in Jesus, we can receive his life and we can be restored to relationship with God. And there's nothing that we need to do except to come to him. We don't need to clean ourselves up first. We don't need to get certain things in order. We don't need to have such a, a, a pedigree or of faith or of knowledge or of anything else. We just come to him as we are. And when we do, then he sends his spirit into our lives, his spirit who will work sometimes instantly and radically, more often probably gradually and progressively. But either way, his spirit that is within us works to make us more and more like Jesus. That's the gospel. That is the good news that we remember as we share in communion. And for those of us who have put our faith in Jesus, I invite you to share in it with me. See, in communion, we remind ourselves of this gospel story. We take the bread, or, or in the case of today, we take the wafer to remember that it was Jesus' body that was nailed to that cross in our place. And we take the cup, the, the juice, to remember that it was Jesus' blood that was poured out for our benefit. And in taking it, we express our faith in his saving work for us. We express our desire to live in the fullness of life that he offers to us in his kingdom. And we receive into ourselves the grace, his grace, to be able to do so. So let's pray and we'll share in communion. God, we thank you for this great message of your grace to us. We thank you for this good news of life and salvation in Jesus a life that we could not achieve on our own. And so in love, you made possible. 
And so, God, we want to come before you again today. We're members of your church, part of your flock, and we come to you again for uh, life, for nourishment, for grace. You are the chief shepherd. You are the good shepherd who cares for us and who lays down his life for us, and we want to remember that now. So God, as we take communion, as we take bread, remembering Jesus' body, as we take juice, remembering his blood, may we be impacted afresh by the good news of this gospel. May we put our faith and our hope in it all the more. And may we experience your spirit at work in us and through us to make us more like our glorious Savior. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now I invite you to peel... Just the first one, and, we'll, and as you're ready, take the, take the wafer and hold on with the cup and we'll, we'll drink that together. As the sheep then who together make up the flock of God in this place, let's drink together in our unity and faith.